This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Love Fridays for a lot of reasons, but uh, one of the reasons, one of the big reasons is that we get to catch up with our next guest, Tim. Yeah, it's Dr. Ian Lusbader. He's Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine. He joins us each and every Friday from NYU Langone Medical Center and joining us on the phone from New York City. Dr. Lusbader, how have you been thinking about this week? Because there are a couple different stories playing out. Uh, yes, vaccines are increasing, but we are also seeing hotspots emerge in places here in the United States, like Michigan for example. Um, how, do you, how do you look at those pieces of data that kind of conflict? For sure. Happy Friday. So uh, I think overall we're continuing to make progress. We're certainly up to at least 20% of the population now that uh, have been vaccinated. And I think we're inching towards herd immunity, which, you know, hopefully over the next month or two, uh, that combined with people who've already had uh, COVID-19 infections, hopefully we will get closer to herd immunity, and that's really the only way I think that we are going to stop um, not only this spread, but stop some of the mutations that we've been seeing that uh, are, are serious concerns. Uh, hard to know why there are some specific pockets like um, Michigan that are seeing a bit of an upsurge. Part of it probably is temperature, meaning we think as uh, the season gets a little warmer, there's a little less viral activity. But I think overall we've made um, good progress. There's still some vaccine hesitancy. I'm not sure in Michigan if that's related as well as the weather. Uh, but I think we still have some concerns, although I think there is starting to be light at the end of the tunnel. So Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan has asked and called for Michiganders to suspend social activities voluntarily for two weeks. She's also asked the federal government to prioritize additional vaccines to the state to help spread to help stop the spread of covid there are those the right moves because there there isn't really general scientific consensus on this because even if more vaccines were to get there the the period of time it takes for the vaccines to start working wouldn't the virus just sort of do what it does naturally in that period of time yes you're 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 exactly right i i think there is uh a multitude of reasons to really vaccinate as many people as possible. I think we're seeing overall, despite a few concerns here and there, a very high vaccine uh, safety and very high vaccine efficacy. And now we're really broadening out uh, the ages and availability, which I think is important because young people certainly can be a reservoir, uh, relatively asymptomatic. So I think that that is important. Uh, and you're exactly right. Even though you closed down for two weeks, even if you started vaccinating everyone, uh, it takes really at least two weeks to begin to get some antibody response. And we do certainly know uh, patients who get COVID in between their first and second shots. So I think it's uh, helpful. Uh, I think one could argue you know, how helpful it would be really to do just a, a two-week shutdown, and you always have to weigh that against economic uh, fallout and consequences. But I think getting more vaccine and getting it into people's arms uh, will certainly make a positive impact over the long term. Over the short term, you're right. It may not make a significant impact. Hey, Dr. Losbader, I'm curious how concerned you are about 
the concerns about AstraZeneca's vaccine, France pulling that vaccine as a second shot for those under 55 who've already had their first dose. And then the EU, uh, their drug regulator has started a review to assess blood clots in people who received J&J's COVID-19 vaccine. I mean, the message has been we're going to need multiple vaccines to get over this. So when you see those kinds of stories, how troubling do you find them? Uh, somewhat troubling, but not very troubling. Basically, we do know all of the vaccines are uh, quite efficacious and uh, have a low, not zero, but a low overall incidence of side effects. I think they really need to do more due diligence and find out if those clots really are related to the vaccine. When you're vaccinating millions or hundreds of millions of people, you can uh, always correlate uh, deaths or neurologic issues or clots. I mean, this happens in large populations. The real question is, can we tie it specifically to the vaccine or not? And I think we need to wait for that data. And it probably is reasonable to take a little bit of a pause while you're clarifying that. But certainly the other vaccines, the uh, Pfizer-Moderna vaccine, uh, generally are available. We've not seen any significant problems with those. I would be a little surprised to to really uh, believe or see data uh, with clotting uh, because they use um, kind of an old-fashioned technique of this viral vector where you have this benign virus that introduces the uh, important part of the spike protein to, to generate antibodies. And that's worked in the past without any significant you know, complications. So I think it's a concern. Um, I agree, maybe taking a pause, it's a risk benefit versus, you know, having other people not be vaccinated. Uh, but I think it is reasonable to look into that, although I'm skeptical that will pan out. Hey, just quickly, 30 seconds, and then we'll come back and talk some more. But Pfizer today, just about an hour or so ago, uh, they're looking for U.S. approval to expand the vaccine vaccine for emergency use authorization. We're talking about for adolescents now. Um, that's a big step forward, potentially. Oh, yeah, huge. I think it's it's important. Look, we've been giving kids vaccines, even hepatitis B vaccine. Mm-hmm. You can't start kindergarten. So this sort of vaccine fear in young people, I think, is not really well-founded. Obviously, we don't have, you know, uh, years of data. But I think it is reasonable, and I think there are uh, complications, some complications, rarely with young people. So I'm, I support the 12 to 15. Basically, if we right. vaccinate a large group, we will decrease um, uh, mutation and overall gets a herd immunity. Ian, I kind of want to do a town hall with you because I got a couple of quick questions and then I want to move on to stress in Wall Street. But uh, question is, can you mix and match COVID vaccines? We don't really know, but we think you can, and there may be some benefit to that. Um, we're not in that position yet, but certainly for other countries that hopefully we'll cooperate with who need extra vaccine if we wind up having extra. Um, if they've had one, it's probably very reasonable to give a second dose of another vaccine. Hasn't been well studied, but uh, theoretically fine and probably will work out. Uh, very well. All right. Second question. Researchers identifying five new cases of double mutant COVID variants in California. I feel like I'm watching a crazy movie. What What does that mean? That is concerning. And this uh, double mutant variant has been seen uh, in India extensively. It certainly means if we're seeing five or more cases here, there are probably a lot more that are not found. The problem uh, with not reaching herd immunity quickly uh, is that you get variants and you get the more the virus replicates, the more mutations. And these mutations are more aggressive, easier to spread and maybe somewhat resistant to the vaccine. So this something is something that needs to be watched potentially is quite a concern. 
and hopefully uh, more cases will not be found. But this could be a real problem. Okay, another one for the lightning round. What happens <laughs> if you don't know that you have COVID, like you're asymptomatic, and you get a shot for the vaccine? Do we know what happens? Uh, probably uh, not much. Uh, it may not be uh, as effective, or you may have more side effects, such as some fever or chills. There's certainly no danger to it, um, and it probably will just boost your own immune response, which is fine. All right, last lightning round. Wealthiest countries getting the vaccine, uh, vaccine and vaccinated faster. You know, we keep talking with people about the concerns about that. What are you? What are your thoughts on that? You know, it would be great if life were fair and it would be everyone wants to feel in control. Humans like to feel uh, they hate change. They, they love to be in control. And this pandemic has certainly disturbed that. I think it's reasonable for the countries that have developed the vaccine and funded it, you know, to get it. But unless we really do share extra, for example, with Mexico and in, into our southern border, that really has a very little vaccine and, and around the world, all we're going to do is prolong the infection for everyone. So I think it's in everyone's interest to collaborate and share. But I do think it's reasonable for the countries that have paid for it, you know, to get it first, but certainly not to hoard it. Okay. Didn't mean to stress you out with that. <laughs> but speaking, no, no, not at all. <laughs> you're so good. But speaking of stress, uh, Wall Street, we feel like all of a sudden we've seen a, a flurry of stories. Uh, Royal Bank of Canada and Toronto Dominion Bank, they're giving employees an extra paid day off this year uh, as the pandemic is showing signs of worsening in Canada. I mean, there are concerns about strength. You know, early first time junior investment bankers, you know, telling that, you know, the firms are saying you don't have to work on the weekend. Wall Street stress. Um, you're, you know, do you feel like companies and the world is thinking differently about how stress impacts us as workers? I think so. I think uh, companies are thinking a bit differently. They're hopefully thinking more about their employees. This is, has been a very stressful time. They're documented increased stress, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, fatigue. You know, humans don't like change. They don't like to be vulnerable. We do a lot of things to pretend we're not vulnerable, even though we are. And I think it's reasonable for companies to make some accommodation. On the other hand, people have to sort of step up and say, you know, life is challenging. Let's help each other. Let's collaborate. Let's be nurturing to each other if we can. Um, but stress comes along and there, there will be other problems along the way. And I think we have to, you know, accommodate, but not make people assume that life is going to be easy. Uh, Dr. Lusbader, we only have 30 seconds left for this, but you know, just leave us with a little tip to help us de-stress for the weekend. And if people are starting to feel burned out getting to 14 months into this pandemic. A hundred percent. One, I think people should feel encouraged that we're, we're getting closer to herd immunity. Nurture yourself, socialize. Very important to socialize, either uh, with distance outside, six feet. Exercise. The weather's getting nicer. Take your vitamin D. And I think uh, there is light at the end of the tunnel, and we do have to hang in there a little bit longer. <sighs> Thank you. We appreciate yeah, that. I like to end on that. Oh, good idea, good idea, and good advice, uh, Ian. Thank you so much, Dr. Ian Lusbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone, on the phone in New York City. I have to say, as it's gotten warmer, Tim, that has given me some optimism. Yeah, you know what's been great is just going on walks after work or later at night when it's like not too cold out. It has helped so much. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Well, there's a story in the magazine this week. It's about the big pharmaceutical company that was out in front in the race for a vaccine, Tim, until it wasn't. That company is AstraZeneca. Joel Weber is an editor at 
is the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Excuse me, Joel. He joins us on the remote from Brooklyn. Jeremy Keene is the futures editor at Bloomberg Business Week, and he joins us on the phone from Turkey. Joel, what happened with AstraZeneca? Well, it is one of the um, most interesting stories, I think, um, in in the pandemic, um, because uh, there was this collaboration between Oxford University and Astra that at the start, it really looked like it was going to be the first vaccine um, out of the gate that people would be able to use. And, And the beauty of this particular vaccine, of course, is that it is really cheap to make and does not require refrigeration. And so from the get go, it was viewed as this great hope because it would be basically the world's vaccine. Um, it, as uh, the uh, uh, trials went along though, AstraZeneca started to have some unforced errors and that's led to where we are now, which is that the company has been sort of mired in in confusion and um, hesitancy. And the ultimate risk here is that um, a vaccine that does look to be effective, and there has been recent news about uh, some con- concerns about um, uh, clots that should be taken seriously, but but the, the pluses continue to outweigh the minuses, um, yet we, we could end up prolonging the p- pandemic because of the he- hesitancy around the vaccine. So, so Jeremy was the um, guiding editor on this story. Um, Jeremy, I'm, I'm just curious to you, as, as you got into this, like there was so much, there's been so many stories about Astra over the past several months. And like, I think this was the best read that pulled it all together. And I'm curious to you, like what, what were the things that really stood out to you as you were editing the story? Uh, I think, you know, for me, Joel, it was the sense uh, almost of, it's, (laughs) I hesitate to use the word tragedy because, like, it, this is still a good vaccine. You know, like they, they're the 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 efficacy results have been pretty good, have been very good. I would say even in in the mid seventies, um, and the uh, you know the, the 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 clotting is something that you know governments are clearly taking very seriously. Um, but it, it becomes hard to kind of separate what. Um, you know, the, the story of the vaccine from, from the cauldron of the pandemic and all the things that, you know, they were doing as the front that were really, they, they, they were trying to do something under immense pressure. The world was, you know, shutting down everybody, you know, people were dying really quickly. And, and this company in partnership with, um, you know, with the University of Oxford, you know, they, they set terms that were designed to have the, the vaccine be not for profit there were so many good intentions that, that went into it. And, you know, it's true that they, they had a lot of unforced errors, but even some of those unforced errors are difficult to separate uh, in a way from, um, you know, just from, from the way that things are perceived during a pandemic versus the way that they might have been perceived outside that, that context. You know, like those trials were so closely watched and, right. and you know, yeah. Hey, well, you know, Jonathan, how much of it was, I mean, Jeremy, excuse me, how much of it was that this was, you know, it was a partnership, it was kind of complicated. I mean, Oxford was, you know, I think starting their trials, at least according to the story, you know, when Astra came in, you know, so it was kind of a complicated relationship, I feel like, from the get go. And also, this is the first vaccine, right, that Astra has done. Uh, that's that's correct. They have a they have a they had a flu um, treatment, I believe, that 
that was pretty much the only the only thing that they that they'd really done in that area. And you know, they they definitely had a very good reputation heading in um, under under um, <clears throat> their their CEO. Um, uh, you know, they'd, they'd really gotten a good reputation for putting uh, you know drugs, particularly cancer drugs, getting new treatments on the market. Um, but when they came in, you know, like uh, Oxford had already been working on this. They'd already begun plans for a UK and Brazil and South African trials. So they took over that part of it. And then, you know, Astra said, okay, well, we'll, we'll work out the US trial. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, right at the very beginning, there was, there wasn't, you know, one trial protocol that was going on everywhere. And, you know, that, that makes it a little harder to kind of explain what you're doing and to keep track of things and to tell your story to the, you know, tell the story of what your, what your vaccine can do to the public. Well, speaking of, of that, what is the potential consequence of these blunders over the past few months from AstraZeneca when it comes to the global rollout here? Because this is, this was supposed this is, was supposed to be a vaccine that was really supposed to help uh, prevent COVID in many people around the world because it's so much easier to transport than the mRNA shots from Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, Joel, take it away. And, and Go ahead, Jeremy. Well, I was just going to say quickly that, and to be clear, like, you know, it's still doing that in, in places. The, you know, there, but the, the consequences, of course, are especially with the, you know, the report that just a couple of days ago, um, you know, the, the, the European uh, regulatory agency, the British regulatory agency can come out and discuss a possible link between the, the vaccine and these blood clots. And, and, you know, we're talking about an incidence, I believe it's four in every million was the, the, the figure that, that the UK, if I'm not mistaken, came up with. And, you know, so that, that you can talk about where that lies on the continuum of, of risk, but uh, there are all these people are also still saying like the benefits of taking it far outweigh the risks, especially in the elderly where the incidence of clotting seems to be lower and also, um, and also because the risk of, uh, of what happens if, they, if you catch COVID is so much higher. So, you know, th- that's all still, that, that part is still true. Like, they, you know, they still want to be getting this vaccine out there into the world. Um, but there's also the problem, of course, of hesitancy. Um, you know, we, one thing that, that, that's discussed sort of toward, toward the end of the piece is that, um, you know, you have people uh, coming out and saying this is partly a public relations problem because it, people see these mistakes, these, the, and, and, you know, the, these, the, the reports about the clots come up and, and people die away from taking something yeah. that, that the world needs people it's to be powerful. taking. It's powerful. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that that confusion part is, is the, the ultimate um, uh, unforced error. Right. Um, had this uh, uh, collaboration gone more more smoothly, um, we probably would have had a vaccine that um, people would not have had any hesitancy about. Um, and instead, we've inserted uh, a modest amount of head fakery into this whole thing. And that's just leads to confusion. And, you know, the, the number one thing is we're seeing um, uh, around the world is like, you know, this is still a very lethal virus. The mutations um, we, we still don't understand. And the, the more people that get vaccinated, the more protection that we have. So the hesitancy is really just impeding it. So it was the fact that this goes from first to last. And then I have to say, like, you know, this kicker of the story of just like from AstraZeneca's perspective, they wouldn't even probably done this if they were 
to do it all over again. I just think uh, really kind of sums it all up. Yeah. yeah, not easy to go from favorite child to problem child, that's for sure. Hey, Joel, thank you so much. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Jeremy Keene, the features editor of the magazine. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. All right, Tim. So you remember the story we told everyone about a few weeks ago? It was a Bloomberg exclusive. It was broken by one of our reporters. It was about the startup Verkata, and thousands of its surveillance devices were hacked into. We are learning more, though, about that company, including about the frat boys culture that uh, reigned there. It's our most read story on the Bloomberg. Uh, Yeah, and for good reason. Uh, It is a fantastic story. William Turton is a Bloomberg News cybersecurity reporter, and he joins us on the phone now. Uh, William, I'm glad we're getting to talk about this again. William was on Quick Take with me a little earlier in the day to talk about this story. What did you learn about the culture of Verkata and how perhaps it was connected to the problems that the company has had when it comes to its own cybersecurity? Thanks for having me. So we spoke to, you know, eight current and about 16 former employees. Um, who told us that, you know, the company in some ways was comparable to a frat house, you know, particularly its sales team. The sales team was really focused on profits and scale. Um, And in the course of doing that, they threw a lot of parties, even parties during the pandemic. But they also misled their customers. They told them, they made them promises about the security of its products that just simply weren't true. They told potential customers that uh, Verkata cameras were virtually unhackable. They would tell customers that, Verkata was a MIT slash Stanford company, which is not true. Just the co-founders are alumni of MIT and Stanford. Um, and so, you know, this culture, a lot of employees said that, you know, when the hack eventually happened, they weren't that surprised because, you know, for a, a, a company that has so much valuable kind of insight and it's essentially running just kind of a massive private surveillance state, um, uh, they didn't take a lot of care to, mm. to make sure that the privacy and security of the cameras were, were protected. And yet they have some impressive investors, Sequoia Capital. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, they've raised tens of millions of dollars in venture, venture capital investment. They've grown extremely quickly. They've gone, uh, you know, they started in 2017 with, you know, essentially no market share to now being one of the biggest players in the market. Um, and and that is because, the, you know, they had such a massive cash infusion, right? Um, and so, right, it does beg the question, where was the oversight? Where was, uh, uh, you know, the adults in the room, basically, to make sure that, you know, A, the company wasn't run like this in a way that, you know, people told us they felt like they were bullied, women felt like they were degraded. Um, um, and, and where, you know, was the oversight to make sure a massive hack like this that, you know, will probably follow the company's reputation for a very long time didn't happen. Can I just say, it's an incredible work of reporting by you, Ryan Gallagher, Sarah McBride, and Brody Ford, because uh-huh. you guys, yeah. I mean, tell us about who you talked to, because you get into very a lot of specifics. Um, certainly what resonated with me was some of the things about video fit- footage of female employees being passed around among male colleagues who then offered graphic yeah. comments. Um, tell us who you talked to, to really kind of confirm what was going on, because these are some big charges. Yeah, so, you know, we spoke to uh, current and former employees. And, you know, I will say we did speak to some people who defended 
the company. But, you know, even the people that we spoke to who defended the company could not deny the reality of the culture at Mercado, right? But, you know, the company has said that they're making changes. They're, they're trying to make it a more inclusive and equitable workplace. Um, but, you know, employees have not seen that change yet. Um, you know, we, we spoke to people who are currently still employed there and, and you know, they've said not much has changed. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the company moving forward. William, when you when you dig into histories of, of Silicon Valley startups that are now big companies, you often do find times and instances where they were frat-like environments. And, and I brought this up earlier in our conversation. Reading your story today, it really reminded me of what I read about Uber and, and Travis Kalanick and this God mode that allowed so many employees to actually see where specific customers were going in Uber at any given time. Is what happened at Verkata so much different than what has happened at so many other Silicon Valley startups? Right, right. I mean, oh, God mode is such a good comparison because it's, it's so, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's almost exactly the same, right? There was a yeah. feature at Admin, or at Verkata called Super Admin that allowed hundreds of its employees to view the live feeds or archive videos of any of its customers. And that's also the hackers got in through one of those accounts. And, you know, initially, I think some people tried to say, oh, well, they should secure those accounts better so the hackers can't get in. And the response was, no, those accounts should not exist. That ability should not exist. And now Verkata has gotten rid of that feature and they have a new process whereby customers have to kind of manually grant Verkata access to its cameras. Um, so, you know, it is it's a, it's a great question. Like it is kind of comparable to a lot of the cultures here. But, you know, at the end of the day, this company is in charge of tons of surveillance cameras. So you might expect, you know, a little bit more decorum, professionalism, and like kind of understanding the weight of the responsibility they have. Well, even Sequoia Capital, what their most prominent investor, as you kick off your story, they had a pretty heated conversation, it sounds like, with Verkata after this hacking yeah. came out about, yeah. like, shut off the cameras to us. Yes. I mean, this was one of the most remarkable moments for us when we were reporting this story. You know, in the wake of the hack, Verkata was having these weekly webinars with the CEO where they would answer questions from customers. And not only was Sequoia uh, an investor in the company, you know, they also used Verkata cameras, right? And so it was kind of incredible for us to see one of their IT employees on that call asking, hey, um, how can we make it so Verkata employees can access our cameras? I mean, that was a really stunning moment, honestly, in our reporting. What happened at uh, the Casper mattress store? And you only have 30 well, seconds. <laughs> uh, a drunken sales party uh, that was in part a scavenger hunt ended up inside of a Casper mattress store. Many drunken employees were wrestling, taking pictures, posing on the bed. So much so that a, cu- a, cu- a customer service person in the Casper store called the Ricotta customer service line to ask them uh, to bring someone in to knock it off. And they knew they were doing that because they were all wearing Ricotta merchandise while they were in the store. Listen, unbelievable. You, you got to go to the story. There's so much detail about what was going on at the company. But I also, to be fair, um, you did also ask for Kata to address all of these issues. So it's all in the story because they have um, certainly responses to the concerns about how it was being marketed and what was going on inside the firm. Great piece of reporting. Another great piece of reporting because William Turton broke that initial hacking story for us a few weeks ago. William Turton, cybersecurity reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in New York City. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. You're driving crazy. 
Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Just got about nine minutes left in today's trading session. We're getting ready to wrap up the day and the week. And this is a week where we have seen quite a rally, Tim. Yeah, we really have. Um, you heard the numbers from Charlie just now. The mm -hmm. S&P 500 higher by seven tenths of one percent right now. The Dow higher by eight tenths of one percent. We're trading near records. Yeah, and we're up uh, big time, almost two point six percent for the week overall on the S&P. So let's get to it with Dana Dioria. She's co-chief investment officer of the publicly held Investnet PMC. She joins us on the phone in Connecticut. Um, Dana, nice to have you here with Tim and myself. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, great to have you here, too. Uh, it's been an interesting week. For a while, we were like ho-hum looking for reasons for, you know, there were days where we were up a little bit, down a little. But yet, uh, by the end of the week, we've seen a pretty significant move to the upside here. Uh, what's the macro backdrop here? Yeah, well, I think um, we're seeing a lot of good indicators and, um, you know, across the board. So consumer sentiment is up, obviously. Consumer confidence is up. We had a great jobs report, as you know, added um, 916,000 jobs in March. Um, PMI is up. So uh, really kind of across the board, there's a lot of good indicators. And, of course, we have the COVID checks kind of hitting. So it makes sense that <laughs> it, yeah. it makes sense that, that stocks would follow, obviously. So what derails this, though? I mean, we, we talked about this throughout the show today, just what we've seen so far this year. The S&P 500 for the week, Carol mentioned the number. For the year, it's up 9.8%, Dow up more than 10%, uh, NASDAQ up more than 7.7%. Like, what, what derails this rally here? Well, we do have the specter of uh, earnings season coming and, um, you know, the, the newly released tax bill uh, proposal. And so I think, you know, we do have obviously all of this monetary stimulus, but at the same time now, the market needs to grapple with what, what does it mean, you know, these, these corporate tax increases. And I think you're getting more and more detail kind of coming out on this and analysis is happening. And it, it will definitely be interesting to see uh, as earnings season kicks off what companies have to say as they start to look and say, okay, what does this mean for, you know, our dividends, our, our buybacks, CapEx, et cetera, right, even our hiring. So I think um, what potentially derails it is sort of analysis and, and kind of a sinking in on what, this, what these tax hikes could mean. It's obviously a very ambitious bill. And, um, you know, that, that, that kind of uh, getting priced in, which I don't think we've quite seen yet. Hey, let me ask you, Dana, because InvestNet provides a lot of support for financial advisors, software tools. And from what I understand, your footprint is around 13 million investor accounts. So what are we seeing in those investor accounts? Where is new money being committed? What kind of growth are we seeing in terms of new funds being committed to investing? Yeah, so, well, just at a high level, money is uh, going into equities, as you can imagine, this last quarter with the interest rate increases, fixed income kind of really took a hit. So we know just at a high level, equities are seeing inflows, um, fixed income, maybe some, some decreases. I will say in individual investor accounts that are guided by advisors, they, they're not as quick to move maybe, um, you know, as some of the retail assets that are, you know, direct, directed brokerage because the advisor is there trying to 
prescribe some discipline, keep you to your plan, right? If you're a 60-40, try to sort of keep you in that 60-40. And if after the last quarter that we had, you'd actually be, if, if you were rebalancing, you'd be um, buying, uh, you know, you'd be buying in the reverse because, of course, you had a loss in fixed income, which is, which is unusual. And I think a lot of people now getting their quarterly statements and looking and saying, wow, I lost 300 basis points in my fixed income are, are you know, kind of grappling with that a little bit. But hey, advisors are there to provide discipline and, you know. Well, let me ask you about this because we've had a lot of discussions here on Bloomberg. A lot of people are asking, you know, if the 60-40 portfolio is no longer good enough, especially if you take a look at what's happened in traditional fixed income over the last decade or so. Uh, it's been hard to find yield. So 60-40, is it still that's what you guys are seeing in terms of the investor accounts that people and financial advisors, they're still playing it kind of traditionally safe? Yeah, it'll be it'll take a lot to move that right. That a hundred percent. That's a topic of conversation. Um, and you know, are there ways to get better yield? So certainly more interest in private markets. I mean, obviously you're looking then at accredited investors, qualified purchasers. But to the extent that you know you're in the high net worth space, definitely looking at private markets and alternative options to say, okay, can I diversify that fixed income position? I mean, if you're in a sixty forty. In 40%, you think about the chunk of money, right, that out of your overall uh, investment that you're putting into something that's really low-yielding. Uh, return isn't great. And now, of course, as I, as I mentioned, you're, you're even seeing losses. You know, the, right. the, the story had been, well, at least, it's, at, least it's, at least it's a mattress, right? And now it's not even that. So, <laughs> so yes, 100%, there's questions about this. Got I it. think um, liquid alts as well for, for non-credited. Yeah. Listen, Dana, we've got to run, um, but really appreciate your input today. Have a good weekend. Dana Dioria, Co-Chief Investment Officer of Investnet PMC. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.